but being people, uh, we naturally kind of create these fantasies or these daydreams, these expectations for how that should look. All of us can probably name a couple of situations where it would be great to see God work. But again, most of us then kind of take the next step and say, it'd be great if you work this way. And what's tricky is then we wind up boxing God in. And if he works any way contrary to our plan, we can get frustrated, we can get confused, we can wind up missing him because we've grabbed on to our expectations more than we've grabbed on to him. We're, we're looking at the wrapping paper and not the present inside. And so we talked about that last week, and this week is a natural um, follow-up to that, which is, all right, let's say we actually do, we recognize him. That's what we prayed last week, that we'd have eyes to see Jesus at work in our life. And so God answers that prayer. We actually see him working in our life. Then what do we do? There's three responses that we can see in Mark 3. I'm going to jump around a little bit. The scripture will be up on the screen if you want to follow me there. Starting in verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he's possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house can't stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he can't stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. So there's, there's three different responses. There are only three I can come up with. Only three possible responses in my world to Jesus. So he's, he's come, he's done something in our life. All right, what do we do with that? One is unbelief, it, rejection. It's to not believe him. And you see that here. Uh, you've got two groups. Jesus' blood family. So we've got Mary. And we know he had, a, I think, at least four brothers. There are some sisters thrown in there. So most likely it's Mary and the four brothers who are coming to him to get him. They think he's gone crazy. They said he, they, he's crazy, so they're going to pull him, pull him out. They want to shut him down. You've got to stop doing all of this stuff. Stop saying these things. Stop healing these people. Stop picking fights with the religious leaders. Just come home and rest. And then you have the teachers of the law or the scribes who are, just, who are hostile to him. They think he's demonically possessed and they're trying to shut him up. Even though those people are coming from two different vantage points, I'm assuming Jesus' family is coming. We, we care about him. We want what's best for him. And they're you know, kind of patting him on the head and saying just... Come over here and rest. And these religious leaders are hot. Remember we read in last week at, in verse 6 of chapter 3 that they were looking for a way to kill him. So they're openly hostile. Even though we have these two different heart postures towards Jesus, the end result is the same. They did not believe in him. And they did not believe what he was doing. And they were opposing the work that God was doing through Jesus. That's, that's a bit harsh to throw Mary, who's such a hero, during the Christmas season. She's a hero in Matthew and she's a hero in Luke and to lump her in with these teachers of the law is a harsh thing, but Mark does that. He kind of makes a sandwich. Family, teachers of the law, family. And he's doing that on purpose because he wants us to see, hey, all these guys are lumped in together. It really doesn't matter at this point their personal feelings for him, whether they're motivated out of concern or 
compassion or embarrassment or hostility and anger, their response is the same. They are rejecting what God is doing through Jesus. And there are consequences to that. You, we, we read that. He's, to the teachers of the law, he gives that scary verse if you grew up in youth group. What's the unforgivable sin? You know, And he drops that on them. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You're never going to be forgiven. And to his own family, they show up and he says, who, who are my family? The implication is it's not them. It's not those guys. We'll read in a little bit who it is. And he radically redefines family. It's not blood that's primary to him. It's allegiance to him that is primary to him. There are consequences to what we choose to believe and don't believe. You know that. You know that for sure. One other thing, and then we're going to move past this to happier things. If you find yourself sitting on unbelief for whatever reason, intellectually you can't get around this whole idea of somebody being raised from the dead, or maybe it's because of some experience you had in the past where you prayed and God didn't answer your prayer at all or didn't answer it in the way that you felt like he should, and so you've kind of been shaking your fist at him and you can't believe in a good God in light of all of the tragedy that either you've experienced or that you see on the news, or for whatever reason, you've just said, I can't do it. I don't believe. This is my encouragement to you. Unbelief is not the unforgivable sin. It's, it doesn't have to be a permanent state. Acts 1.14 says this, They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So at some point in the handful of years, two or three years max, after this incident, Mary and his brothers, their hearts changed. And they become, they're in the inner circle, the 120 who remain after Jesus has, has ascended into heaven. They're part of that core group, that initial group that started the first Christian church. So if that's you today, if you're, you're way over here in the unbelief, rejection, I can't buy it for whatever reason, if that's you today, I want you to just hear this. You don't have to stay there. There's a place, I think it's in Mark 9, Jesus comes down from a mountain and there's all this chaos and this dad runs up to him and Jesus says, what's happening? And the dad says, my son, he's having these fits. He's probably having some type of seizures and your disciples can't, they can't help him. Is there anything you can do about it? If you can help him, would you please? And Jesus says, if, everything's possible if you believe. And the, the dad looks at him and says, I do believe, help my unbelief. If you find yourself today in this kind of, this world of, rejecting in this world of unbelief just pray that prayer god help overcome my unbelief help me with my unbelief and put it on him you don't have to investigate you don't have to try, just put it on him god you help me overcome my unbelief and trust him to speak to you in a way that you'll understand to open your eyes to what he's doing some of these objections you might be able to see in a new light he might bring somebody into your life who can help you walk through who knows what he's going to do, but put it on him. God, if you're real, I'm, I, I'll buy it. If you're real, you just need to prove to me that you're real. You can't do that arrogantly. He doesn't play little circus tricks, you know, where we can say jump and he, that's not how he works. But if your heart is honest before him, God, if I knew, I'd, I'm, I'm in. Ask him to help you with your unbelief. See what he'll do. Second group, starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. A large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. 
Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You're the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. So over here we've got unbelief, just flat out no. Here, this, this group is partial belief, which also implies partial unbelief. They're a mixed bag at this point, which I actually think is okay. It's okay to start here. It's just for a lot of us, we wind up getting stuck here. And I think that's where the issue comes in. You can see here, this looks two different ways. One, you have these demons who say you're the son of God, and they're right. If you read through particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're the only ones that get it right. The devil and demons know who Jesus is. Nobody else seems to clue in. He doesn't want them talking about it, but they're right. You are the, he is the son of God. They have the intellectual knowledge, but it doesn't have any effect on their life, on their behavior at all. They don't trust him. There's no faith. There's no confidence. They're actively opposing Jesus. What that looks like for us a lot of times is we take this posture of saying, you know what, I, I got it up here. You're the son of God. You're the king of kings. You're the Lord of lords. I, I get that up here, but it doesn't really affect the way we live. If all we had to do was take a test, we'd get 100. But the problem is we have to live a life, not take a test. And what God is looking for is not just understanding. He's looking for faith, for people who put their weight fully upon him. That's, that's the, the thing for him. What that looks like, I think, for us is we try to confine God to certain areas of our life. It's the divide. You know... Um, in elementary school, you get those lunch trays that have all the sections. That's heaven for me. I don't want my food touching. I have, I have texture problems anyway, but I don't want the juice from the meat touching the vegetables. Absolutely nothing from the fruit contaminating anything else. Everything has its place. And that's how I'll, that's, but that's not life. Life is just a plate and it all gets mixed up. And my heart, it's, it's not, it's not a school lunch tray. I don't have a finance compartment and a marriage compartment and a dad compartment and a work compartment. I don't have that. I just have a heart. And for many of us, what we try to do is we try to segment. Some You've heard the phrase Sunday Christians. There's no, there's no such thing as that. You are or you're not. Business is not just business. That's a lie. It all falls under the lordship of him or none of it does his invitation is follow me try to do that with just part of you you can't do that how could peter or andrew or james or john partially follow you either are or you aren't it's easy for us to think that we're okay with this divided life because he's not physically walking around but it doesn't work that way our obedience or our disobedience spills over into every aspect of our life if i'm a jerk to my wife it's going to affect my work it's going to I can't be disobedient to the Lord in terms of how I relate to her and think that I'm going to be okay in terms of how I relate to y'all. It doesn't work that way. I can't, if I'm obedient to the Lord and what he's telling me to do with my money, then it's going to affect positively the way I raise my children because I'm, I'm one guy. I have one heart. And our hearts scream for that integrity, to be integrated, to be whole. You read the newspaper. What happens when somebody tries to create a separate life? It never lasts for long. No matter how rich they are, no matter how powerful they are, no matter how good they are at keeping secrets and covering their... Tra it always comes out. Our lives scream for integrity. 
the walls are going to come crumbling down. And the same thing is true for us on a much, for many of us, it's a smaller scale. We don't have this devious life that we're living that we're trying to keep from anybody else. We just have these little parts where we're not sure we trust God yet. And so we keep those to ourselves. It's kind of silly to me. God, you can have the forever. You can have me forever. I just don't trust you with now. God, you can have the $100,000 that I'm using for my retirement. I just won't give you the dollar ten that I have in my pocket. That's, that's what that trade is. To say, I don't trust you with now, but I'll trust you with my eternity. My eternity, my now. And there are areas for each of us probably, I, I think this probably fits most, where this mixture of faith and doubt, or of belief and unbelief, and when it comes to relationships, God's great. Or when it comes to churchy type stuff, morality and ethics, God's great. When it comes to closing the deal, God, I need you to stay outside. So I can get this thing done. I'll give you 10% of it once it's done. I just don't want you to see the messiness of how it happens. No. It doesn't, it doesn't work that you get that. It doesn't work that way. We want to have this, this intellectual understanding that Jesus is the Lord or the King without having that affect the way we live in every area of our life. And ultimately, He just won't stand for it. He won't. He pushes for us to integrate. He's pushing for us to live this life of integrity. He's not going to let you keep it divided for long. He says the stuff that's secret, it all, it's all coming out. Everything that's hidden is going to be disclosed. For some of us, that's a scary sentence. Everything that's hidden is going to be disclosed. So why don't you just go ahead and disclose it on your own terms instead of waiting to see how it's disclosed not on your own terms. Go ahead and get it out there. Bring it to the light. Put it, say, listen, you, you take care of this. And it's okay at the beginning to be nervous about it. It's fine. That, it's all right. But you have to start. Don't allow the fact that you're nervous or you're afraid to keep you from moving forward. The second thing, second group of folks, you know what? I forgot to talk about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Are some of y'all thinking about that still? The unforgivable sin? Here, I'll pull over here and we'll do this real quick just in case some of you haven't stayed with me. The unforgivable sin piece it's not unbelief. It's attributing to the devil the work of the Holy Spirit. You see very clearly, there's a group of scribes who've come from Jerusalem. They've come from the Sanhedrin. It's the ruling council. And they're, they're coming to say thumbs up or thumbs down on what Jesus is doing. Everybody's heard everything about his ministry. And they're coming to say either he's righteous or he's a heretic. They're putting their stamp of approval or dif- disapproval on his ministry. So these, this is, this is, these are the top shelf guys. If anybody should recognize the work of God, it should be these guys. And they come in with this. It's silly. By the prince of demons you're driving out. That doesn't even make sense. So Satan is enslaving people, and then Satan is anointing or empowering Jesus to set those people who he enslaved free. How does that make any sense at all? It's stupid. And what Jesus is saying to them, to these teachers of the law, is you guys, y'all are running the risk of committing this unpardonable or unforgivable or eternal sin because the things that you see me doing, you're saying, are coming from the devil and not from the Holy Spirit. You see that in verse 30 very clearly. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. So if you're nervous about committing the unforgivable sin, what I would ask you, do you ever attribute to the devil the work of Jesus? Do you say, you know what? 
if we pray for someone and they're healed, do you say, you know what, Jesus healed them, but the devil made him do it? If you say that, then you, you're in danger of committing the unforgivable sin. If you don't, then you're not. If you're worried about committing the unforgivable sin, then you haven't. Because the fact that you're worried about it means you respect who Jesus is and the fact that you want to be in a relationship with him. So worrying about it is actually a good clue that you haven't committed it. That doesn't mean if you don't worry about it, you have. But for some of you who have a real sensitive conscience and you're wondering, where do I stand with the Lord? You don't, don't, just don't. This is a very, this is a very specific charge to a very specific group. And unless you're doing specifically what these guys are doing, you don't need to worry about it. So now let's pull back to this other stuff, if you can help me. So, we've got unbelief, that was that whole thing, then we've got this partial belief. What it looks like sometimes, it's knowledge without any life change. And the second way, it's the crowd. It's people who have faith. These guys had faith. They were coming from all over the place, miles and miles and miles, because they thought Jesus could help them. They thought Jesus could heal them. To me, the picture, it's like those Black Friday, 5 o'clock, come get a dollar for a flat screen TV things where everyone's pressing against the doors trying to get in. And he says to the disciples, you guys need to have a boat in case this gets out of hand. They're pressing in. That word actually is falling upon him. And so he needs an escape plan. It's not everybody's in an orderly line and one guy comes up and he talks to them and prays. No, it's mob scene because they believe this guy can help us. The issue is they don't seem to have any clue or any care about who he actually is. He's a vending machine. Let me push the button and get what I want. They don't really care about him as a person. They're not looking to develop any type of relationship with him. They don't care what he wants to, what he's got to say. They're just literally trying to grab a piece of his robe or put a hand on his arm because they think he's magic. And when they touch him, suddenly whatever their problem is is going to get better. For most of them, it's it's a physical problem. And as soon as they touch him, again, it's going to be like magic. They're going to suddenly feel better. They don't care about him. That's why they're not, again, they're just, they're pressing in, trying to get what they can get for us, what that looks like. We don't, that's, that's not a good picture. And we say, oh, that's not, I don't treat the Lord that way. But a lot of times what we kind of do, you've all had friends probably who are takers. They want to be your friend because of what you can do for them. They want to be your friend because of who you're friends with. And hopefully you can put them together so they can connect. Or you've got a beach house or a mountain house and they want, they're hoping to get an invite in the summer. So they can have, you, you, we don't like those folks. But we know those folks who are, they're always maneuvering and trying to drop in and drop out and see what they can get out of a relationship. And when we find out that's what someone's been doing to us, it hurts. And a lot of times we get angry and sometimes we get our feelings hurt and we don't really want to have a whole lot to do with folks who operate that way. But for some of us, if we were to push into our hearts, that is how we relate to the Lord. He is a cosmic vending machine. And what we're looking for with him is not so much a relationship as a transaction. All right, God, I'm going to do this for you, and that way it's going to make you do this for me. And everything, it's, it's a contract. I'm going to do my part so you can do your part. Whatever his part happens to be, keeping me out of hell or helping me find a job or whatever the issue is, that whatever my point of pain is, I'm looking for him to meet that need. And once that need's met, then I'm good until I have another need. Now, for most of us who are following Jesus, we started because he met a need in our life, and there's nothing wrong with that. I felt guilty, and he offered me forgiveness. I felt lonely, and he offered me reconciliation with God. I was dissatisfied with my life and thought, is this really 
all there is, and he offered fulfillment and purpose. All of that is fine. That's where most of us start. Again, the issue is you can't stay there. Those of you who have children, you remember when they are babies, everything revolves around them. They don't care if you've got to get up in the morning. They don't care how long a day you've had. It's 2 o'clock, and they're hungry, or they're thirsty, or they're bored, or whatever. They're going to holler until you take care of it. That's what they do. And we, don't, we try not to get mad at them for doing that. We don't blame them for being selfish because they're babies. Now, if a 15-year-old acts like that, there's trouble. And if a 25-year-old acts like that, it doesn't work. As we expect maturity, and the Lord does the same thing, He expects maturity from us. So we can start out as babies. Gimme, 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 gimme. Meet my needs, meet my needs, meet my needs. But eventually, we've got to move from this transactional type deal to a true relationship. Many of you are married. All of you have been to a wedding ceremony. This whole idea for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, I think that's what God's looking for from us. It's great when I get the warm fuzzies. And it's great when there's you know music in the background and the sun is shining on me and the waters part and I can walk right through it. I love those times. But when it's not those times, he wants to know, are you going to stay with me? Just like she wants to know, are you going to stay with me? Anybody can have a good time on vacation. What about not on vacation? Are you going to stick with him? When he doesn't heal you, are you out? When it's for poorer and not for richer, are you out? When it's worse instead of better, are you out? That's what he's looking for from us. And what he'll do, um, some of the fathers and mothers of the church have called it the dark night of the soul. He'll pull his hand back from you just to see, will you keep coming after me when you can't feel me? And maybe many of you have experienced this. You're, you feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling. You feel dry spiritually. There's not a lot of joy in you. You feel like you're just going through the motions. It's a ritual. It's drudgery. You start questioning, God, what, what am I? What's wrong? Maybe if you have a sensitive conscience, you're trying to figure out what you did wrong. Most likely you didn't do anything wrong. He'll let you know if you did. He's just saying, hey, let's, let's grow up a little bit. Will you continue to come after me even when you don't get the feel-goods for coming after me? Were you looking for just a transaction, or were you looking for a relationship? C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, it's a, uh, excuse me, Screw Tape Letters, it's this correspondence between these two demons, Screw Tape, who's a senior demon, and Wormwood, who's a junior demon. It's a great book. And they're going back and forth on, this is how you wreck people's lives. And there's one particular letter that Screw Tape, the senior demon, is writing to his protege about ups and downs that people go through and it's during a down spell and this young demon is so excited because his human is experiencing a lull and screw tape says this don't be deceived wormwood our cause that's the cause of the devil is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but intending to do god's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of god seems to have vanished asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys let me read that one more time don't be deceived. Our cause, that's the cause of the devil, is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but intending to do, our, to do God's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, asks why he's been forsaken, and still obeys. That's what he's looking for from us. Not just when health, not just for richer, not just in better, but on the other side of that, will we continue 
to push after him. That's a maturing thing. Partial belief is fine as long as we're moving beyond that to this last category, starting in verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside. He called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, excuse me, son of Zebedee and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jump over to verse 34. Then Jesus looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the last category. This is the good news. It's belief. We've got unbelief. We've got this mixture of belief and unbelief. And then we've got just straight up true belief. And this is the good news for all of us. A couple of things on this and then we'll close. One, notice Jesus called people to himself. Jesus picked. He chose. In the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters, a theme that runs through is adoption. This idea, God picked you, and he picked you, and he picked you, and he picked you, and he picked you. He picks us. He calls us out to himself. Ephesians 1, in love, God predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Do you see that? His choosing is all rooted in him. Some of you, the idea of being picked, it reminds you, you were always the last one. And for some of you, it reminds you, you were always the first one. None of that matters with this. If you were last, it was probably because you stunk at whatever game. It was based on your ability. If you were first, it was because you were great at whatever game. It was all based on your ability. That's not how God chooses. It's all rooted in him. If it was rooted in our performance, that is shaky ground to stand on. I don't want to get cut. And so I've got to keep jumping through the hoops. I've got to keep performing. I've got to stay on the treadmill because what if he cuts me? If it's all rooted in him, that's solid. That's unchanging. That's a rock. He said he's a rock. And so if he's decided for whatever reason to pick me, well, that takes all the pressure off. I don't have to do anything except say yes. And the same thing is true for you. You don't have to do a thing except say yes. Romans 8 says this, You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship or the spirit of adoption. And by that spirit we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. You see the picture there. He's bringing us into his family. And he's adopted us. He, he chose us. He didn't just get stuck with us. He's chosen us to be with him. You see the picture here. I don't know if he'd have picked me to be in the 12, but I know he's picked me to be one of his sons. And that invitation is open to all of us. It's the prodigal son in Luke 15. Go back and read it if you forgot. The son runs away from the father. The father is waiting on the son to return. And as soon as he sees him, off like a rocket to hug him, to welcome him back into the family. If that's you today, no, he's waiting. He's already chosen you. He's waiting to see, are you going to say yes to him? He wants you in the family. Are you going to say yes or are you going to say no? It's good news who he chose. Look at this group of folks. There's nothing special about them. 
Peter, Andrew, James, John, they were businessmen. James and John were probably pretty successful. They had their own equipment, had some folks working for them. Some folks think if I'm going to move into the, if I'm in the business world, I can't really follow Jesus. The, his, the top four guys, his four closest guys were businessmen. You can, absolutely. Being in business does not in any way disqualify anybody from following Jesus. You don't need to think that somehow to follow him, you've got to quit your job and go to seminary or quit your job and move to South America or something. You don't have to do any of that stuff. He picked you. He wants you. Matthew was a tax collector. Most likely he was a cheat. Probably charged more than he should have. He was propping up this pagan government. And then he picks this guy, Simon the Zealot, who would have been this radical nationalist trying to overthrow the Roman government. So, again, imagine you got a basketball team. you got 12 guys. You're going to pick this one guy who's personally profiting by ripping off the Jews in order to support this pagan government and this other guy whose sole commitment in life is to overthrow that same government. And you're going to put them together and say, all right, y'all work together. That's what he does. He takes radically different political perspectives. He takes people who doubt. He takes people with huge egos. He takes people who are arrogant. He takes people who are temperamental. He takes all of them. Picks them as they are. He doesn't say clean up. He doesn't say go to school. He doesn't say learn a little more. He doesn't say mind your... He doesn't say anything. He just says come and follow me. 1 Corinthians 1 says this. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. How come he did that? So that no one may boast before him. It's because of him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Hear that. That's comfort for all of us. It's not because of me that I'm in Christ Jesus. It's not because of my youth pastor that I'm in Christ Jesus. It's not because of my mom. It's not because of my dad. It's because of him. That is solid. You can put your weight on that. It's because of him that we're in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You hear that. For some of you, you're, you don't see yourself, if you're honest, as not. You see yourself as, hey, God was lucky, I'm a first-round draft pick. What you need to hear, just as much as guys who feel like they were the last one chosen, it's not because of you. You might be incredible. We won't argue about your level of awesomeness. But you need to know, it's not because of that that He picked you. He does not need you. He wants you. Because He made you. That's it. And that's wonderful that you are so confident in who you are. And you don't have, that doesn't have to change. But if, if in your mind, the reason that you're in Christ Jesus is because of how good you are, or how holy you are, or how much of the Bible you've had memorized, or how few sins you've committed, you're wrong. It's because of Him that you're in Christ Jesus. Because He loved you and He picked you out. We were all dead in our sins. Dead people can't do very much for themselves. And he calls us to life in him. He picked us when we were dead. We couldn't even raise our hand and say, pick me, pick me. Last, 
It's good news why He chose us. Why did He choose them? He called those He wanted. Hear that. He wants you. He, doesn't, he wasn't stuck with you. He, he, he chose you because He wanted to. For what? And they came to Him. He appointed twelve. How come? That they might be with Him. How about that? So they might work for Him. No, so that they might be with Him. He's looking for a relationship first. He was looking for family. That's what He was going for. He recognized blood. it's not biological. That's not the thing here. He's looking for people who are going to live life with Him. He picked 12 guys to be His family. We just read that. We're co-heirs with Christ because we're His brothers now. Even if you're a woman, you're His brother now. It's not a gender thing. That's a place in the family thing. We're all sons of His. He's looking for people to be with Him. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, knowing God and knowing Jesus whom God has sent. That's it. He is the prize. Read the Old Testament. There's 12 tribes of Israel. 11 of them get a big old chunk of land, and that's their inheritance. There's one that doesn't, the tribe of Levi. They get God. That's it. They work the temple. Their job is to be priests. That is their inheritance. He says, I will be your inheritance. And what does he call us in the New Testament? A royal priesthood. He is our inheritance. He's what we get. The bells and whistles, the fringe benefits, I'm going to take every one of them, and I hope you do too. But that's not the thing for us. It's him. He's looking for people who want to be with him, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health. That's what he's looking for. Relationship. And the second reason he called them, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So yes, there's this relational thing and that's primary and that's foundational, but there's also this purpose-filled mission that he's given us. He's about, if you read John, he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. He's, he's got an assignment from his Father and he's saying, who wants to help me get there? We're going to do this as family relationship first and then mission then obedience then your deal after that that comes out of relationship with him he's looking for both john 14 15 if you love me then you'll obey me that's not it's not a test it's not a a bar to jump over it's just reality if i love her then i'm going to do what's best for her right if i love her then i'm going to do things that please her isn't that just an expression of love The same thing is true with the Lord. If we love Him, then we're going to obey Him. That's more a statement of reality than anything else. It's just the way it works. Well, I love Him, so of course I'm going to do what He says. I don't want to disappoint Him. He calls us to be with Him, and then He sends us, He calls us to send us out to do our thing with Him. We're all with Him working to see, God, what do you want to do here in Marietta? What do you want to do in my company? What do you want to do in my kids' school? What do you want to do in my house, on my street, in my heart? He has things for us as well. Let's pray.